This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here, we're watching here... This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the Tyler Winklevoss to my Cameron Winklevoss, Perry Seibert. I've always wanted to be one of the Winklevoss. I know, I'm I know. I'm so happy. We, there, there are two of us. <laughs> it's the greatest insult of the decade in any film. <laughs> the Winklevoss. The it's Winklevi- so good. Oh, it is. We are going to be talking about the uh, the social network as part of our discussion about the career of Aaron Sorkin. He has a new film out called The Trial of the Chicago 7 that's on Netflix right now. Um, but first, Perry, what have you been watching? What have I been watching, Chris? I, I think this would be a good time for us to discuss the charms of Borat, subsequent movie film. Oh, I'm always uh, up for discussing that. <laughs> Uh, I went into this um, with my – here's the thing. I think Sasha Baron Cohen's a genius. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I love him. I'm not saying I love all of the work, but I am glad to, I am glad to entertain whatever he tries. I have a very difficult relationship with Borat, as I'm sure anyone who listens to us regularly could understand. There are things in that first Borat film that I think are fake. I think they were scripted and I think they're played so as not to be scripted. And I find it uncomfortable that so much of it rests on you having to believe that it was all in the moment. I'm not saying it all was, but there are just things that bother me about it. It just plays in a way I don't care for. You know, I don't like it when documentaries play that way. I don't like it when fiction films play this way. (laughs) They're pretending to be documentaries. Um, what I loved about this is that this, this – so I, I think with the exception of the Rudy Giuliani sequence, almost all of it was scripted. I refuse mm-hmm. to believe that that much of it at all was, was not at least set up or everyone was in on the gag. And it doesn't matter because the point of the satire in this film is so directed at the political climate right now. It, it, it has a much more – focused gaze at what it is satirizing than the first one did. Uh, and so I would, I, it finished and I was like, that's this. I've never, I never thought I would have this reaction. It's less funny than the first film. Mm-hmm. It's a better film than the first film. And I think it cuts deeper on the whole than the first film does. Interesting. I, I definitely thought it was less funnier uh, than the first movie. Um, I, I am I'm a big Sasha Baron Cohen fan as well. I love the Ali G show, and I think I kind of doomed myself going into this one by brushing up on watching a few old episodes of the Ali G show, watching the first Borat, which my wife had never seen before, and um, that was an interesting experiment. <laughs> but uh, but I, I can imagine I definitely I, I I I see what you're saying. I do think the vast majority of this is scripted. Um, and I think a lot of that first one is on, you know, on, on a rewatch. I, th- I think you can see that a lot of that is set up and just framed a certain way. And it's more apparent here that 
this is, you know, a lot of people are in on the joke. There's the guy at the Kinko's who obviously is not, he's not troubled by the death threats coming in across his fax machine um, and things like that. Right. But and the joke there is, like I said, the, the joke isn't, in, in the first film, the joke would have been, wow, this idiot doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And this one, the joke is that, He's trying to accomplish this. The joke, the joke is about the story. It's not about. It's not a candid camera laugh that he's trying to get. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I was kind of torn on it just because the main thing with me with Borat is I like to laugh, and I didn't laugh as much as this. But there were, there were honestly emotions that I didn't expect watching a Borat movie. Like I yes. think, I think the relationship between Borat and his daughter as weird and wrong as everything is it's kind of touching um and then the whole sequence at the end with giuliani i did not expect to be feeling anxious (laughs) during during a borat movie like like that type of anxious like am i about to see a crime um and i think it is over time he has you know the the whole joke of borat in that first movie is not so much a political dig. It's how long can we have people be polite, right? It's how long are, is, is someone going to keep up this whole facade of, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to be polite, I'm going to put up with your shenanigans before they kind of push back. And this is more targeted at America today. And I think when it does hit, it hits harder. Um, I, yeah. I, just, I, I just wish I would have laughed more. But um, it's a movie that I finished it. I wrote my review. I was like, yeah, it was what it was. And then just kind of seeing other people talk about seeing the impact it made. I've been thinking, oh, I might need to see this one again. Um, Because it it really does stick when it needs to. Yeah, I I, I would, I would, and I would go a step further and say that for me, the first one is, is, it is even less about how long will I listen to this idiot than, how can I put people in a position where they look as terrible as they possibly could? Mm-hmm. And this one is does that, but it's not about the people sharing the scene with Borat. It's about how bad can I make this already horrific political situation look? And this is, uh, to be fair and clear, this is an equal opportunity of offender of a movie. This is not – there are some spectacular digs <laughs> mm-hmm. at, at, at victims you might not expect. In this movie, yeah, uh, it's it's it's. I just think it's clear-eyed. It's sharper. It's a better film, in in in. I'm in almost every conceivable way. He's a better actor than he was. 15 oh, absolutely. Years ago. Yeah. And it's it's it is a pleasure, like you said, to actually to realize halfway through this. Oh wow, he wants us to actually invest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like he wants us to actually care. And that's fantastic that he would he would want to do that, and then on top of that, actually pulling it off. That's yeah, that was a good. I did not um, I did not even think of considering that for my what we've been watching because I think I assumed it came out before we had recorded our last episode, and it had not. <laughs> um, but that, that I'm glad we got to talk about that because that was a pretty big movie last month. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about that one. Um, I've been watching uh, one that I know you've seen as well, uh, Sofia Coppola's new one, On the Rocks. Oh, yay! Which, um, you know, if you live near one of the dozen theaters in the country that's open, you could go and see it right now, or you could see it on uh, Apple TV Plus in the comfort of your own home. 
this stars Rashida Jones as a as a woman who is beginning to suspect, you know, that her husband might be having an affair. She is, you know, kind of out of sync with everything because she they have a young daughter and she's beginning to, you know, just see that parenthood takes her kind of out of the rhythms she's used to. So her father, played by Bill Murray, uh, he decides they need to investigate this whole affair thing a little bit deeper, and they kind of go off on shenanigans across New York to to track down the truth. Um, I'm a huge fan of Lost in Translation, so I really was excited to see Sofia Coppola and Bill Murray work together again. Uh, this one surprised me. I felt like I, I think I went in expecting Lost in Translation Part Two, and I didn't get that. I, I what I did get was a very enjoyable uh, light comedy that has a more you know it's a subdued Bill Murray, but it's still a very charming Bill Murray. Um, in, in a performance that really just kind of shows how charismatic he is, but it's also you know it, like Bill Murray often is. He's he's a man who's very you know, sad deep down. Um, and I think Rashida Jones is very good as his daughter, who is just starting to figure out where the life is shifting under her. And she needs to figure out whether something's wrong or that's just the phase of life she's in. Um, I enjoyed this. It's a very light kind of a kind of a lark from Sofia Coppola. But I think when it I think it has a lot of subtlety that kind of lingers after the movie passes. I uh, I I really liked it. Um, uh, I I I I love it because it feels like it does not feel autobiographical, and yet it feels very personal. Mm-hmm. This is you know it is this is about what it's this is this is Sophia's fictional take on what it is like to be the son the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola. It's hard not to read it any other way, especially if you've paid attention to the work of. Uh, all of the Coppola children, Roman too. There are moments in Roman's films where you realize, oh, you're working out having an incredibly charismatic father, <laughs> and not not and workout seems too hard a thing because it's not like they're upset about it. Yeah, they're just like, this is my experience. This is what this was kind of like, and uh, I, I would like you to pay attention to this because I think it's worth saying. And they're right, it is. Um, it, this is just a love letter to Bill Murray. Yes. What a gift of a role. Uh, this is, it is, it is so good. It, there, he is so warm and so charming. There's a sequence where he talks himself out of a speeding ticket. <laughs> yes. And yes. it is, it is the most purely Bill Murray scene I, I've seen in a long time. Like, yes. like, and she just, she understands. She, I think she just understands the appeal of bill murray so well she knows how to work the sad side when she needs to but also that he is very charming and sometimes those kind of mingle a little bit uh there's Mm -hmm. also a scene where he he sings to a restaurant like like these this these diners at a restaurant he doesn't sing well but it's so captivating because it's bill murray and you just can't look away from what he's doing and um it really reminded me of i I really like the very murray christmas that they did for netflix me too and i i what i like about that is i feel like that captures every side of bill murray that we like there's there's the somber side there's the kind of just charismatic lounge lizard guy there's the guy who shows up at various parties and, and and is just very inspiring and i just think she knows how to work him very well. Um, 
and it's just it it doesn't you know it it, it doesn't go in the predictable route where yeah they're fighting the whole time or she's just you know Rashida Jones is just kind of waving off her dad there are moments of tension between them but it doesn't like they don't overtake the movie it's it's a much more complex relationship than I expected going in and the thing that surprised me in a not great way is she is has her strength to me has always been her subtlety she does not she does not wrestle directly she does not tell you what's going on mm-hmm. I, I mean it take with lost in translation being the high point it rests on a conversation we never get to hear it doesn't matter <laughs> it's all about the behavior that leads up to that moment where they are willing to have the conversation and i was thrown by the fact that their big confrontation in the movie is direct there is everything is laid out there's nothing left and i was actually sort of thrown by that and i didn't like it i was like that's not that it almost felt like some sort of like she lost faith in herself in some weird way not that it's a bad scene it was just like this doesn't feel like sofia coppola but then um honestly the the last scene then turned that around for me when she goes home and has the last conversation with the husband after wondering whether or not he's been cheating on her throughout the entire movie, which has been the crux of the movie. Uh, the scene between Rashida Jones and Marlon Wayans is so good. And so uh, it is uh, It is direct. It is – everybody says exactly what they're feeling. But they're big feelings that are really – they are played at such a normal level. They are not mm-hmm. heightened. They're not played for drama. And I was like, oh, oh, good on you. <laughs> Thank you, Sophia. You 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 went to a different gear <laughs> to, to land on, and I was impressed. And, yeah, uh, I just think she's been on a really good run. I seem to be the only person on the planet who really liked the Beguiled, her remake of the Beguiled a few years ago. I think she's been on a great run. I for don't about five even years now. I don't even think I saw the Beguiled. The Beguiled is a fascinating movie, if for no other reason than. Watch it as a double feature with the original because it's you're watching Don Siegel, who was the least subtle filmmaker in the history of American film, and, and Sofia Coppola, the most subtle filmmaker <laughs> of the last 30 years, tackle the exact same material. And it's fascinating to watch them both do it. They tell the exact same story and they tell it entirely differently. It's really interesting. I will have to track that one down. I really like Sofia Coppola. And um, I, I totally agree with the conversation at the end, too, between Rashida Jones and Marlon Wayans. Uh, it, it really, like, you're geared up for the movie to go one direction. And it, it it's a quieter ending. And, yeah, I think it's one that, you know, is a little more true to life and a little more emotionally complex than I think I was prepared for like just the it feels more real like the yeah the things you deal with in a in a relationship where you have kids um so that is on the rocks that is streaming now on Apple TV plus which I have to say I think Apple TV Apple TV plus launched about a year ago and I remember laughing at it because it came out with nothing on there except the morning show um, and, and I just got a plug, like, there's some really good stuff on Apple TV Plus now between <laughs> that, there are several documentaries I really liked, and um, 
I've been really obsessed with Ted Lasso. So uh, that's definitely a streamer that I think is worth looking into. Well, we're going to turn our attention from one streamer to another. We're going to look over at Netflix now, uh, which just about a month ago launched, uh, debuted The Trial of the Chicago 7, the new film from Aaron Sorkin. Uh, His second film is a director. Uh, This is the true story of seven people who were on trial uh, after the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. This stars Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and Frank Langella. Um, And yeah, I guess, Perry, where would you like to start? Because I will confess that when I saw The Trial of the Chicago 7, I realized how much I had napped through social studies and knew virtually nothing about this story. Oh, yeah. This is is a famous, famous trial that should be more famous than it is, quite obviously. I had. (laughs) And there have been. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I had to Google just to see. Like, there there was a part of me going, this is really good, but some of the stuff in here seems really over the top. And then I Googled, and nope, nope, that all happened. That happened. There have actually been a number of cinematic treatments of this material already. There was a very good TV movie done in the 80s, and there was a really interesting documentary done by – it's the same crew that did The Kid Stays in the Picture, the the Robert Evans documentary, Mm -hmm. that is an animated documentary. They actually – animated they got really good actors to read the court transcripts they 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 just reenacted it verbally and then animated it and that's really interesting that's a film worth seeing i think it's just called chicago eight um yeah so this is and this is material uh this is historical material near and dear to my heart i i am i am fascinated by this period of american history i always have been and so i was i was very interested to see what sorkin would do with this um I was coming at it in a very um, – there were a lot of things that were keeping me from being fully excited about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mostly I was remarkably underwhelmed by Sorkin's directorial debut, and we'll get around to that more in a minute. But uh, more importantly, I have said uh, terrible, terrible things about Eddie Redmayne for years <laughs> and years. And I thought there is no way in hell he can play a Midwesterner. There's that is not going to work at all. And man, in 30 seconds, he's got it. Yeah. He is so good right at the top of this. Um, boy, uh, I, I, I'm not going to take back everything I said, but I will say that for, for that two hours, I had no desire to punch Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> and it was real nice to not want to punch Eddie Redmayne for the first time in a really long time. I him in a movie. I felt much the same way because I feel much the same way about Eddie Redmayne. Um, he is someone who I just, whenever he has shown up on the screen in the past, I have kind of tensed up and just been like, I don't like him. And I don't know why, but I just don't. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and that same thing. Like, I think he's really good in this. I think he, you know, I think the heart of this movie is kind of the – the differing approaches from uh, Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman. And mm-hmm. I think I, I think he plays, I mean, he plays kind of a guy who isn't quite, you know, firm in what his convictions are at that point. Or how much he wants to push, you know, his voice. Or should he just, you know, go along to get along and try and work change elsewhere? 
And he's up against, you know, a very charismatic, very boundary-pushing man, played very well by Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, mentioning him again. And I think their scenes together are some of the best in the movie. Yeah, if you've seen... Uh, so so uh, the, the, the exact flip happened for me with Sasha Baron Cohen here in that the first 30 seconds he's on screen, I'm like, that's a terrible Abby Hoffman. I don't believe that's Abby Hoffman at all. First of all, he's a foot taller than Abby Hoffman. That shouldn't bother me, but it is. This isn't playing for me at all. And then once – and I don't think it, – it's not that Sorkin and Cohen had to get into the rhythm. You got to get to where the what the film is doing with Abby Hoffman. And then you realize, oh, no, that's really good. Mm-hmm. He's doing really, really good work in this movie. Sasha Baron Cohen is – um, because it's not the, it's not the playful, childlike Abby Hoffman that if you that you're used to seeing if you watch a lot of old clips of Hoffman. I've seen Steal This Movie, the adaptation of Steal This Book, Hoffman's autobiography, starring Vincent D'Onofrio, did a fantastic Abby Hoffman in that movie. It's great, um, and it seems very lifelike. And this is this is very much an interpretation of Hoffman. And it's great that they always have him paired with Jerry Rubin, who's played by the dude from uh, Jeremy Strong. Succession. Jeremy Strong, who's fantastic as well. It's great. They let Jerry Rubin have all the really big laughs. And uh, and he's fantastic. He's really good in this, too. Everybody's really good in this. It's a it's a really well acted film. Uh, Yeah. So I just I was impressed with how well. They they put up these personalities and I don't mean how much I think they're exactly like the real life figures just setting up their purposes for the story that Sorkin wants to tell, which I think you're exactly right. This is a film about how do you fight power? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what this, that's what that's the central question of this movie. Yeah. Um, now, I will say I, I like Jeremy Strong, but I felt like Jerry Rubin felt very caricatured to me. And I don't like I, I don't I know very little about the real life guy, but it just seemed like a kind of a hippie caricature where everyone else seemed a little bit more full blooded. Um, he you know, he basically the the drama for him is that a girl he liked was a cop and, and he seemed <laughs> bummed by that. Um, it, it didn't bother me, but it was definitely something where I didn't feel that character got the, uh, you know, the, the full rounding that Abby Hoffman or Tom Hayden got. Um, but, I mean, everyone in this, though, I like Mark Rylance is someone who I just, I've loved watching him have this kind of late-in-life bloom as, a, uh, as an actor. I, I always like it when he shows up, and he's used much the same way Spielberg uses him, as just kind of this voice of de- quiet decency. Um, yes. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I had, he has been off screen for a while until this year, and I liked him. Um, he kind of did the Joseph Gordon-Levitt thing that he does. Um, but I, I enjoyed seeing him again. Um, it's a really strong ensemble. Uh, I, and I enjoyed that. I think this is definitely one of those things. Like, this is a movie about, you know, idealism. And it's a courtroom drama. And that really is just kind of the sweet spot for Sorkin. Like, oh, yeah. Like this is this is a movie I wish I would have been able to see in a big theater uh, with a crowd because it is a movie that is played for you will you know laughs and cheers in different places and I think it's one of those ones that would have been a lot of fun to watch with an audience um, but we were really never going to get that anyway because it was a Netflix movie um, but I think that's just he Sorkin knows how to have 
smart people talk about smart things, but in a way that doesn't feel isolating. It, it feels very engaging and warm. And I think that's why people like him so much is, you know, it, it's smart without feeling like it's out of your league, even though no one ever sounds like a human being. You know, they he sound like. To, yes. He writes to a very catchy rhythm. Yes. Yes. I think because I've been going through, and I think I told you this earlier, this was the most delightful research I ever did, was uh, going through a lot of his <laughs> movies, uh, revisiting a lot of them, uh, seeing two of them for the first time, and just just the delight of watching these movies over the course of a week or two. Um, and you do, you get into that rhythm, and it's it's very noticeable. He has a very distinctive pattern. And it's like music. When, when they play it, it's like, oh, I know who, who wrote that. I know who did that. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, but there, Absolutely. Was, there was still something that, like, felt a little off to me when I finished it. And I don't... I, I couldn't quite put my arms around it because... I knew I liked the movie. I knew I enjoyed it. I thought it was very smart, very well acted. But there was something that was I felt keeping me at arm's length. And as I watched other movies this week, I think I found out what it was, was undiluted Aaron Sorkin is a lot sometimes for me. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's, a very, it's a very strong thing to get a lot of without another director kind of tempering some things or filtering it through their sensibilities. Um, and and I, I, I don't remember much about Molly's game. I know I saw it. I know I, uh, I didn't hate it, but I was kind of like, whatever, you know, it was fine to me. Um, but it, it, it didn't really resonate with me at all. Yeah. This is a step or two or five about Molly's game. So I was really happy. I I, 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 agree. It's really, it is, it is, it is a really interesting thing to think about what this would have done had it been a normal year and it played in theaters, mm-hmm. um, especially coming out at the height of a, of a, of, of a, of a heated presidential contest. It really would have been interesting to see. I personally think, you know, virus free, I think this would easily be an Oscar contender. Oh yeah, I, because it feels like the film. It feels like exactly the kind of political sweet, sweet spot the Academy likes to hit, um, uh, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> Other people probably would think I mean that as an insult, or would assume they would be insulted by such a statement. But no, I mean it in a good way, and I think that yeah, I think that this was so much better disciplined. Than Molly's game, and I mean literally in the actual words being spoken, he he gets away, he gets he trips over himself and falls in love with stuff he didn't want to cut in Molly's game that is just problematic, and I'll get into the other things that are problematic about that film when we get around to it. <laughs> but suffice to say, yes, and I, I I understand where you're coming from, and for me, where it left me was so much higher than Molly's game that I was like, all right, now you are ready to make a really great movie. You've made a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Now you're ready to make a really great movie. Go do it. Uh, there's something he does in this, though, that I really liked. He does it twice, I think. And it's where he's going to connect from the courtroom back to the events of the convention. And it will it, like, it will be edited so that it's someone talking on the stand, maybe Abby Hoffman talking on the stand. It then flows into Abby Hoffman you know, speaking in front of a crowd – 
And then it cuts into the events at the convention. And I found that really, like, just a really powerful way to draw that line between the court case and what happened and just in in a very energetic way that I I really liked it. Just hadn't expected it when he did that. Um, I I really, I found that very effective. Um, And I I think the, the question at it, not... Not will they be acquitted or convicted, but what's the whole purpose of them all being on trial? Why are they there? Is it that they want their voices heard and this gives them a platform, even if it means it's going to torpedo their, you know, their chances? Or are they there to work, get themselves out of this, get themselves acquitted, and then make change another way? And I think that tension feels very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorkin has said how he purposefully wrote and directed this so that it would have parallels to today. And you can look at this and you see this summer's protests and you see a lot of the things that came up in the election. And I think someone else, I know Spielberg was attached to this for a few years, and I I don't know that it would have had that vitality. It would have been a very different movie in many ways, I think. Yes, I think it would have been a much less interesting movie in a lot of ways, (laughs) quite frankly. I I, I like the the raw sort of, and I love the story. I mean, Sorkin's been telling the story everywhere doing press for the film about how, yeah, he came on board because Spielberg called him and said, Hey, I kind of want to do this movie. And he was like, I think that's a great idea. Yes, let's do it. And then he had to go find out about the trial. He had no idea. He did not know this history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, that's a fascinating admission to make. (laughs) Let's see what kind of movie you make about that. (laughs) Cause I think that that shows that it's not a polemic. I mean, it is, but not in the way you think it is. Yeah. It's not about it's not about celebrating these seven, these eight people, nine counting William Kunstler. Uh, but it's it's uh, it it works as a as a as a narrative. It works as a story piece, even if you didn't know the real story. This works, and it is interesting. You know the 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 the, the he, you know he absolutely takes liberties that I think are with all but one perfectly acceptable. <laughs> I have one, I have one little historical thing that bugs me about the movie. Um, but I understand why it's there. Uh, uh, Dave, Dave Dellinger never, never slugged anybody. During that. <laughs> Dave, Dave Dellinger was a pacifist. He really was a pacifist. He did not slug a guy in the middle of the trial while his son looked on uncomprehending un- of such violence. Uh, that was that was the that was the moment that was a little too on the nose for me, especially since it wasn't historically accurate. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I, I think it's a really like I said, I just think it's another really smart piece of work from him. And I'm I am glad he got to do it. I'm glad it's not bathed in Spielbergian pathos. Well, OK, now when I saw it, my first instinct was, well, I think Spielberg might have been able to to tell a better story about the actual people. Right. If that was his focus. But after this past week of going through Sorkin's films, I really want to go back and rewatch this because the one thing it does so well that I think you see in all his movies or most of his movies is he's fascinated by ideologies and the conflict between ideologies and philosophies. And I I, want to watch it back in light of that because I feel like I'll appreciate it more having just gone through all these movies. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and watching it again. Cause Good. it is whatever flaws it had. It is highly enjoyable too. It is oh, not a, very much. So. It's not a slog. It doesn't feel like a history lesson. It is funny. It is 
moving. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I think this would have gotten a lot of play if we were having, you know, regular Oscars this year. Yeah. Um, but I think that sets us up nicely to seek into a discussion of his career. Um, and I don't know if you want to go all the way back. I feel like A Few Good Men is where you have to start, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. An adaptation of his play. Uh, Rob Reiner <laughs> tapped him on the shoulder and said, let's go be famous, young man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, a hit movie was made. I, you know, I, I remember seeing it at the time. I had no idea. I, had, I was completely unfamiliar with the play. I went on this cold. I remember thinking, well, that's efficient. <laughs> I don't dislike the movie. I can't believe it was a Best Picture nominee. <laughs> Back when there were only five nominees. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand how this happened. It, other than it, it, is, it is a very old-fashioned, straightforward, you know, I would, I, I'm sure I wrote a nice, polite three-star review of it, which is exactly <laughs> what I think it deserves. Um, it's, it is absolutely worth seeing. It will divert you for two hours. It has a little bit on its mind. I think it lays out very much exactly what would prove to be what Sorkin does best, which is to, uh, uh, to deal with, with some exceptions, he deals with, you know, a whole lot of characters so that he doesn't have to go too deep with any of them because I think (laughs) he is, I think he's, I think he is, I, I don't mean this as negatively as it sounds. I think he's a very shallow writer. I, there's there's no great there's there's not a lot of depth in Sorkin's work most of the time there are exceptions, but he's very comfortable juggling like you said a uh, lots of people with lots of opposing viewpoints and letting them talk in ways that are very entertaining to listen to, and all of that is on display in A Few Good Men. What's funny is I grew up listening to my parents talk about A Few Good Men. They love it. Like they they saw it. They bought it. Was a rare movie they bought, um, and they've talked about it for years. I would have been. 13 when the movie came out um and i never got around to it until two weeks ago uh, oh wow yeah i had never seen a few good men um and i would agree 100 percent with everything you said i think it's very enjoyable um i think you can kind of feel his uh his rhythm starting to develop there and i think sometimes the actors have a little bit of an issue with the banter, like in the non-courtroom scenes, you can feel them kind of wrapping their arms around it. But it's highly entertaining. And, you know, it's all there for that scene at the end with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, which is mm-hmm. so much fun to watch. I mean, I've, I've forgotten how much fun it is to watch Jack Nicholson just go full bore screaming at someone, which is one of the great pleasures. Oh, um, yes. And, and I like I like the struggle with Tom Cruise's character, which is... It, like you said, it's shallow, it's surface, but it's still, I think he does a well, a good job of portraying this guy who's kind of, you know, been apathetic or a slacker, which is really a front for kind of insecurity, which I think comes back through a lot of Sorkin's screenplays are people whose insecurity affects them and might put wedges between them and others or might hold them back a little bit. Um, I, I enjoyed watching that, Um I was the same way, though, like, oh, this was a Best Picture nominee? It, it, it's yes. it's solid. It's a very solid, watchable, good movie. It's enjoyable. If it was uh, if I was flipping through and it was on TNT, I would stop and watch it to the end. Um, and I'm sure it's on TNT yes. all the time. Um, yeah, it is, it is not even – I had a really fun conversation with a dear friend this week 
talking about uh, a different movie altogether. Uh, actually, talking about uh, a television show, and we were talking about how it's so hard that there's no there's no adult entertainment. It's either prestige or pulp. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in between anymore, and this is in between. That's what this is. It is. It is supposed to be for people who want to think a little bit and, and, and enjoy, you know, really rhythmically well-delivered dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't it, – it's not it, – it, you know, he, he tackles his obsessions with power much, much more strongly in other stuff. <laughs> it's there. It's certainly the central conceit of the, of the play and the movie. But it's not, it's not a grand statement. It is – it's a fun time hearing a story. Yep. And I wish there was more of that. Yep. Um, his next was Malice, which I have not seen. I have not either. And all I remember is throughout my last two years of college, Alec Baldwin yelling at me from a TV screen, I am God. That's all I remember. <laughs> yeah, but that's sure, just like, Alec Baldwin doing a Tuesday. But <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And I was like, well, I think I know what this is about. I guess I never got around to it. I don't know why. I was in college at the time. I was busy, and I've never gone back for it. I don't know why. I would. I like Walter Becker. He's made some really entertaining movies. I just never have. Uh, His next script was The American President, which was another one I had not seen until two weeks ago. Um, And I really enjoyed. I, I I thought it was just a nice, smart movie. Um, you know, I, I don't think, like you said, he's not particularly deep, especially when it comes to characters. And he has issues sometimes with female characters. Oh, not sometimes. Um, <laughs> more, more than sometimes. Not yeah. all the time, but more than sometimes. Yes, it's, it's, <laughs> his, his average is not good on that. And I don't quite think, like, I, I don't think the romance in the American president really rises above sweet. Like it's not it's not the oh, great no. love story. But what I loved, what I didn't anticipate, and it's really I think the thing that I love about Sorkin's writing so much is anytime you watch a movie about the president or about politics, politics are just kind of this broad nebulous thing, right? It's there's a country going to attack us. There's a politician <laughs> we don't like who is coming against us. And he gets like you can just tell what he likes more than anything is to have a specific issue there and he's having smart characters debate politics in a romantic comedy in a way that shows he's thought about it he has opinions he takes a side this isn't yes. this isn't one of those you know partyless presidents that appeal you know so the movie appeals to all all bases it it puts plants its flag to you know its ideology and I think he has more fun writing those scenes than he does about any of the romantic stuff. Um, oh yes, and it was it was just a delight to watch watch them banter and watch them uh, talk about intelligent issues in a romantic comedy. And I don't think you would have many movies like that today. Like I, I don't I don't feel studios would say, yeah, you know, this is a sweet romantic comedy with a lot of. Uh, a, a lot of political talk in it that gets really nitty gritty. <laughs> Warner Brothers isn't going to put that out today. Um, uh, I mean, the closest thing you had was last year with the with the Seth Rogen, Charlie Theron comedy, which yep. gets close to it. At least that at least that at least, you know, 
stresses a political ideology and is still a sweet love story and arguably, yes, a better and deeper love story. Than Definitely a better love story. American president. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, you're right. And I think that it, that dovetails really nicely with what we were talking about earlier, where we don't have a space for this kind of movie anymore, it seems. Yeah. And and again, like I was watching it just thinking of Rob Reiner, you know, because this is another one by Rob Reiner. And yep. just this past weekend, my wife and I were trying to find something on HBO to watch. And we, you know, we went back and we rewatched When Harry Met Sally. And what a hell of a run that guy had. Like, oh, yeah, look at that filmography, the 80s and early 90s. And you're like, wow, he was just going to make great movies forever. And then he didn't. And (laughs) well, and he did. He did for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it was over. Yeah. (laughs) But man, when he was on, was it over? Yeah. Yeah. I think North was either. I think North was right before this. See, that's I will go on record as saying I don't hate North. North doesn't work, but I see what North is trying to do, and I don't mind it. You don't hate, <laughs> hate, 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 hate I North? Do, I do not hate, 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 hate <laughs> North. I actually really like the central message of North a great deal. The underlying story is, I think, really great. It is so weirdly told that it's problematic <laughs> beyond belief. No, not even beyond belief. That's not fair. It's all a matter of whether or not you enjoy watching you know, really sticky old comedy stuff done through the perspective of a nine-year-old boy. If you think that's funny, you're going to be okay with this. <laughs> Apparently, I'm okay with this at some level. <laughs> I can't remember but, if no. I am or not because it's been years and years since I've seen that. There are so many movies that are so much worse than North. I'm not saying North is good. I'm just saying of the films that you should spend your <laughs> energy hate, 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 hating, it's ridiculous to hate, hate, hate North. <laughs> um, after this, Sorkin goes into TV for a really long time. Uh, it's like Sports Night, West Wing, and Studio 60 are, are basically yes. his output. Um, I remember Sports Night. I know I watched probably the first season of that i was a little too young for it to really stick much but i remember it got a lot of love from the critics and maybe not as much from audiences if i remember correctly i think that's exactly accurate yes okay it had a it had a small devoted following and was got rave reviews and i watched it intermittently because that cast was so good and the dialogue was so much fun and i ended every episode thinking this needs to be an hour. This is exhausting. This is I love talking. This is too much talk in 27, 23 minutes of network television time. <laughs> you can't. There's not enough room to breathe. <laughs> it's exhausting. Well, then he gets his hour long with the West Wing, which really feels like it, it. Really feels like he went back to the American president. Was like, you know, that was fun. I want to do more of that. And I, I have let's to con- drop the love story. Yeah, let's just talk about policy. Exactly. Um, I had not. I, I think I've seen up until a week ago. I had seen maybe two episodes of The West Wing. Oh, oh you got to go through The West Wing for the first time. I'm. I've started. I, I actually started right after election night, as we're waiting oh. for the results to come in. I'm like, I, I just, I, I was done with the Sorkin movies, oh, and I was like, I kind of so miss that voice. I need to feel good about <laughs> politics again. Uh, and so I started at the beginning and, oh, I'm enjoying it so far. I, I, it's I great. I don't know how I missed this one. I, I it's honestly great. don't. It would have been 
right in that wheelhouse when ER was on the same network and probably, you know, a very, like, not a similar show, but similar, you know, similar demographics are watching that. And I was a huge ER fan. So I don't know why the West Wing just never was one that hit with me, uh, why I never gave it a shot. But I I definitely am in now. It's all on Netflix. And, uh, yeah, that's been a great way to pass time. Um, I can say I've seen several episodes of Studio 60, though, um, which <laughs> which is the one TV show uh, until this year uh, that I had ever written a review of because I was so captivated by the pilot that I wrote that it was the greatest episode of TV I had ever seen. Uh-huh. And wow, did the next few weeks kind of uh, make me feel embarrassed for that review. <laughs> Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> and I watched every episode of it because I was, I was, I went from, well, I, had, I mean, I was, so, okay, back up just a little bit. I was a absolute over, head over heels uh, fanatic over West Wing the second okay. it premiered. I, I would not miss an episode. I rearranged my life to make sure I never missed it. Um, and I only bailed about half a season after Sorkin left because once Sorkin leaves, you can tell. I'm not saying it's a bad show at that point, but it's not the same show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went, I'm out. <laughs> as, as much as I love all of these actors and this entire cast, except Rob Lowe, who'd already left, I don't have anything more to, to give to you. You're not going to get back to where you were. Um, and I've heard that the episodes are very good. I have no interest, but for the first, for that first four seasons, whoo, oh, you are in for a treat, Chris. You're oh, going to enjoy I'm this to so much. It only gets better over seasons two and three. And then four, yeah, you can tell the cocaine and mushrooms have added up and it's, 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 <laughs> it starts to take it. So I'm not saying it's terrible, but you can tell things are not, things are not well at home. <laughs> the production is troubled because the writer is you know, gacked to the eyeballs and can't get shit in on time and everybody's stressed out because it was the most expensive show on television. So it's, you know, there there are prices to pay and it's worth it. The West Wing is, is great. I was so geeked for Studio 60. Sure, behind the scenes of Saturday Night Live, let's do this. Um, and wow, it's so bad. Yeah. It's so, it's so, you're right. The, the pilot is fascinating. The pilot's not terrible by any means. Um but, oh, he just doesn't know what he wants to say. And I think it comes down to the fact that, uh, you know, we, we've been getting around this. And I think I've said it obliquely in a couple of ways. For me, I don't, think his, I don't think his central thing is to talk about ideologies. His central thing is to talk about power. And it's all related to power. And he doesn't have a hook for power on television. The stakes aren't high enough. He doesn't present to you how powerful that show is in the culture. And so there's nothing at stake. It is just the relationships. It's not the ideology. And uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. (laughs) And it's not funny. The show is – they're making a Saturday Night Live that is not – well, okay. I guess today that's Saturday Night Live. It's not funny. No, uh, I will have none of that. That's too easy. (laughs) You're better than that. Come on. It it is – you know, it's it's a – I, I think there were sketches where they were doing like Gilbert and Sullivan songs, like 
like yeah. just not understanding what that TV show was that the characters were making. And it didn't help that it came out the same season as 30 Rock. 30 Rock. Which yep. had a much, just a sharp take on that, which wisely didn't show you the show they were making very much. Um, and yeah, I just, I remember Studio 60 tuning into it a few episodes into the season after I was kind of aware it was going downhill. And it seemed like almost it had turned into part-time war story um it it just seemed very strange by that point it, it's it's they didn't he didn't know I, i'm thoroughly convinced he he lost it a few episodes in and had no idea where to go and so it flailed yeah. and and went out with such a whimper it's it's really not go- i i i'm trying not to be mean but oh my god why would you ever cast sarah paulson in a comedy i i don't decide sarah paulson has has a lot of skills as an actor. None of them involve making you laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's it's just it's amazing that we can we're we're spending <laughs> we've we've talked so nicely about people like Marlon Wayans and, and Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> and we've spent so much time talking about this terrible terrible show. <laughs> well, the only other Let's stop. The only other TV <laughs> one he had was another one I haven't seen, which is The Newsroom. And I feel that kind of, uh, from what I've talked to, it's more mixed, kind of better than Studio 60, people seem to say. But oh, by maybe far. Not the West Wing quality. Um, that, that's that's exactly right. It is worth watching to watch Jeff Daniels uh, in that lead part. Uh, it's another pilot that is, you will, you will think it's the greatest hour of television you've ever seen, once again. I, I have seen the pilot because I have seen the uh, America is Not Great speech, which yes. is fantastic. Um, yes. But about the same time he's doing that, he's getting really interesting in movies again uh, because Charlie Wilson's War comes out in 2007. I haven't seen it in years, but I know you have a lot of fondness for this one. I have seen it numerous, numerous, numerous times. Um, Under Sodium Pentothal, I might say it's his best film script. Okay. I'm not saying it's the best movie, but I think it's the best script. Um. Uh, it is it is again back to his central theme which is power and in this case how does one who is in a position of power suddenly realize how to use it and that's fascinating um and he he gives a a supporting character to philip seymour hoffman that is one of the greatest things you will ever see i i gus stavros is one of my favorite movie characters and he gets to deliver a speech at the end of this movie that, for me, uh, is the deepest speech he ever wrote. It's, it is a speech that I think of often. It is a speech that I try to live by. <laughs> it expresses a sentiment that I think is exactly right <laughs> for as an approach to all of life. Uh, I, I, forgive me for being flowery, but it just it always it, the film just worked for me the second I saw it. And before it gets to that point, it is funny. It is full of, you know, true like door slamming farce of people being going in and out of rooms at just the right time. It was directed by Mike Nichols, who was the only director who ever figured out how to use Julia Roberts interestingly. (laughs) And she's really good here. Hanks is great in this, uh, letting everybody else have a blast. He is straight man to everybody else here. And he's he's very funny, too. I'm not saying he doesn't get really good laughs in this. Um, Oh, 
I really love this movie. And if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. I think it's a really great movie that, again, gets at something really, really deeply humanly profound without being on the point about the politics itself. It's not about a particular ideology. It is, but it isn't. You could easily make this exact same movie about the other uh, an issue on the other side of the aisle, and it would play exactly the same way, and it would be great. Also, it's it's I think it's a really great movie. I have it in my Amazon queue, rented, and just did not have the time to sit and devote the two hours to it. But uh, I I think I'm gonna go back and watch it because I do remember I remember Philip Seymour Hoffman very vividly having. Uh, just numerous good, very profane lines, and um, I would watch it again just to watch him again because he, he's got an opening scene with John Slattery that is one of the greatest. Just the two of them are so good, and the dialogue is so much fun, uh, and it ends on such a perfect comedic grace note. It's it's so the whole thing is so good. It's um, just great. I'm looking forward to visiting that one again. Um, his next one was actually, uh, it, it might be my vote for my f- the best movie made from one of his screenplays. Um, <laughs> so la- earlier this year, we did our best of the decade list, right? Where we, we both announced 10 movies that were the best of the last decade. I did not have The Social Network on my list. I watched it again last weekend. And I am wrong for not having the social network on my best of the decade list because damn, is that a great movie that that is just I think there's just something about Fincher and he has a strong enough voice that he can kind of overpower some of uh, Sorkin's tendencies. But Sorkin is writing smarter than I think he's ever written. And that 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 duet there is just so fantastic. Um and it all rests that that opening scene with uh, Rooney Mara and Jesse Eisenberg lays out every single petty rivalry and insecurity he will have over the next two and a half hours. And it is just such a delight to watch. It is. Um, I agree entirely. And it is it is it is interesting in the Sorkin canon because it is the one time where his central character truly uh, does talk like that and does not care who's listening. Like he does not, he's not trying to win anybody over. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's trying to win a certain somebody over (laughs) and has no idea how. And that's, what's really interesting. All of the Sorkin heroes are traditionally, you know, in the, in the, in the, uh, they're attractive people. They're seductive people in the best sense. They are charismatic people who bring you into their world. And this is not a charismatic person. This is a person who drives people away. Mm-hmm. And he's real clear about that. <laughs> and I, uh, it is, it is the least Sorkin like story for that very reason. Uh, I, I, I find it fascinating that it's his. <laughs> it, 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 which is probably why it made the best movie out of all of them. Well, and uh, there's so much idealism in a lot of Sorkin stuff, and this doesn't have that. This is, I, I think, this is where Fincher is really helpful because he isn't as optimistic about people, and he he is a little colder, a lot colder, um, and he doesn't 
he doesn't sand off any of the rough edges that uh, their Zuckerberg has. Uh, no. And I think it makes it for a more fascinating movie. It's, oh, it, it's so, so much fun to watch. Every, I think every performance in that just, I, I love. I, I love yes. Army Hammer in that. I love Andrew Garfield. Yes. I think, I think Justin Timberlake is used very well. I, I, I remember at the time thinking it was like a best supporting actor type role. I don't think that because I don't think it's a great acting job, but it's a great use of Timberlake as. <sighs> the rock star that Zuckerberg kind of wants to be. And I'm going to give Timberlake enough credit to know that that's exactly right. And that's what he was doing. I, I am. I, I, Timberlake is a savvy performer. And I think he knew exactly what to do with this or for Fincher told him exactly what he wanted out of it. You know, Fincher doesn't fit, you know, this, as we've talked about the story from Zodiac where Fincher made, you know, he made Downey Jr. and Gyllenhaal do things over and over and over because he wants a specific thing. And so I'm sure he tailored exactly what he wanted out of Justin Timberlake in that movie. And he was exactly right. And Timberlake absolutely gave it to him. I, I, I'm, I, I, I don't care for Justin Timberlake. I will give him full credit for, <laughs> for what he pulls off in that movie. And let's face it. I forget. Who won the Oscar that year for Best Actor? Was oh that – was that – was uh, that the year of Was that the year of the King's I think speech, it was the King's was... speech. It, it was definitely the King's <sighs> speech. Yeah. Damn. I mean, oh, yeah. I love. I. 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 I he, he's such a wonderful actor, but oh my god, Jesse Eisenberg is so good in that movie. He is. <laughs> he's. Oh. He's so shockingly good in that movie. Yeah, I and and a lot of anytime I have some issues with a with one of the movies Sorkin's been involved with, it's usually that like I said with uh with Trial of Chicago Seven, there's there's something about undiluted Sorkin that sometimes just is a little too much, and I think Fincher is just such he has such a specific voice that I, I think he can kind of temper those, and it's just interesting to see the uh the give and take between the two, and it. Makes for a much better movie that way. And I think it's interesting to compare it with the film right before it and the director right before it. You know, Mike Nichols is one who can bring depth out of seemingly light material. And that's maybe that's why Charlie Wilson's War feels so strong that, it, you know, he knows how to amplify where there are much deeper things to dig at in, in, a, in a text. And that's 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 an interesting thing to think about. I, <laughs> As much as we want to make, we can complain about the faults of Sorkin, but oh my word, (laughs) David Fincher, Mike Nichols, Danny Boyle, and Rob Reiner made movies out of his scripts. Mm -hmm. That's that's A-list directorial talent through and through. Yeah, and and I think my problem sometimes with Sorkin is it's just too much of a good thing, right? Like I I I I enjoy it. Anything I say that's kind of flaws, I I enjoy watching them. I, I just always think it's it's interesting to watch the other directors who have filtered his work, uh, which his next the next film was Moneyball, which is another one where I think it's interesting to watch his script, which is I think it's his only co-writing credit, correct? Moneyball, and it's an it's a you know it's a word and not an ampersand. So he and Steve Zalian both worked on it separately. So who knows? I, I mean, I don't, I don't. And Zalian is is a brilliant screenwriter. So I don't, I have never been comfortable knowing who did what on that script. And Bennett Miller himself is a fantastic judge of writing. Mm-hmm. And so 
I, you know, it, it is, he's, he's absolutely credited on it. I'm sure he provided a lot to it. It's one that is hard for me to think of as his, although you can certainly see the, you know, his, again, it's that, it's that power dynamic of someone who this time we've got somebody who needs to figure out how to put himself in the position of power he supposedly has to change things, mm-hmm. which is, you know, very West Wingish, <laughs> but in a very different and way more singular way. This is one of the few films where he really does focus in on one person and yeah. really tells, you know, a single story and has to go deeper and is better for it. It's a real, I really like Moneyball a ton. I rewatched this uh, early last week and I had seen it in theaters. I think it might have even been on my top 10 list that year. Um, and I, same thing, I walked away just really enjoying it. I, from what I remembered, when I saw it originally, I remember being very confused uh, with the actual, you know, the actual shenanigans between management and the team and everything. I don't know why I was confused. It, it's very easy to follow. I think that's another thing Sorkin does really well is take complex things and make them very easy and engaging to follow. <laughs> yes, it's the advantage of being very, very of having great facility at being shallow. Yeah. Yes, it can make terribly complicated things seem very understandable. <laughs> but, but it is the one where. I can't. I couldn't really pick out his rhythm, which I think might be that collaboration with Zalian. The the uh, dialogue in there, it, it's still smart, but it doesn't have that patter. And I, that's not something I mind. It feels much more grounded and realistic. Um, and I, I don't know if that's that Bennett Miller just knew how to ground it a little bit more with the uh, with the cast he had. Um, or if it was the two writers and just the way the dialogue shook out, but it was fascinating because it didn't have that kind of, you know, peppy banter, but it was really just, you know, matter of fact, inside baseball speak. And I still would have liked to see what Soderbergh would have done with this, but I really like, Oh yeah. I really like Moneyball. And I had forgotten that it does end on a real melancholy note, just a, a, like a little rough note. That uh, I had forgotten about, and in my mind, it had ended in a fluffy ending of him, you know, thinking about his kid. And then there's the last notes to the song, "You're a Loser, Dad," and just that that really just lends that unsettling end that kind of ties into all the insecurities they built into Billy Bean for that. And it's I think Brad Pitt's really fantastic in it too. And that feels way more like Zalian than Sorkin. Yeah, yeah. Or Miller, actually, than either of them. So that, that's that's why it's a collaborative art. I don't know, but yes, agreed. Pitt's fantastic. Jonah Hill's fantastic in it, and they're they do it. The scenes do have they do have that banter. It's just a way slower rhythm, mm-hmm. and they're just as funny. Uh, it's a really good movie. Yeah, I, I <laughs> I'm big, really a big fan of Moneyball. I enjoyed it, uh, and then there was Steve Jobs, which. Uh, that might have been the one that dropped a little bit from when I had seen it before. I, I think I had that pretty high on my best of list the year it came out. And I still, I think there are some really great moments in Steve Jobs, but I don't think Danny Boyle quite gets his arms around it. And I, I, it feels very repetitive. The way it's set up is repetitive, but you can kind of, it, it still feels very stage bound to me. Uh, this is going to be really interesting. I agree with you, but I like it better than you do. 
now and not as much as you liked it then. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm like, I'm fine with it. It's another, for me, it is what we were talking about. It, it's one of the last gasps of a adult piece of entertainment. It's not, it, it doesn't have anything terribly deep on its mind. It doesn't cut nearly as hard as uh, social network does. It's talking about what tech does. Um, it also is responsible for. It's got a fantastic that cast again. Oh yeah, is fantastic and, a, and everybody gets a really good scene, at least one. And it contained the movie resulted in what I think is one of the greatest compliments ever paid to any screenwriter, ever by anyone, and that was uh, Andy Hertzfeld, who is played by Michael Stuhlbarg in the movie. It's, it's a real guy. <laughs> Michael Stewart plays him in the movie. And there were all, you know, there were all this talk at the time about how the movie was made up so much stuff because it does. It, does. <laughs> it completely it has this arbitrary structure that isn't real uh, to deal with these real people. And, and Andy Hertzfeld was asked about that. And he told an interviewer, nothing in that film happened and every word of it is true. And yeah. I think that's as nice a compliment as you can give to any screenwriter. That's exactly the job of a, of, of a playwright or screenwriter in that situation. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, there are just the, the dialogue in that really is him and, you know, high gear, but then you have, I think it might be maybe the best cast he's had for, there's been for a uh, Sorkin script. I mean, you have Michael Fassbender. I think Kate Winslet's very good. I think Seth Rogen is really good in that. Yeah. I like Stuhlbarg. I like Jeff Daniels a lot in it. It yep. is a very watchable movie and very smart. I I feel like around the third iteration of the uh, of the presentations that it they, they even make a joke about it. Like it, you know, Steve Jobs says it's like every five minutes before a product launch, people come back and air their old grievances. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's what's happening, and I kind of feel it. <laughs> but it, it's not enough where I would say I dislike it because I I like it a lot. It just. I think that's where I can feel Danny Boyle kind of struggling to bring something new to it. And and he tries. There are some really fun visual flourishes in that. I just don't feel he totally gets it, you know, feeling not stage bound. But then again, it's a movie centered around stage presentation. So exactly. that doesn't exactly. bother me as much. Um, and, and I really like, even though I shouldn't like that last scene, I feel like I shouldn't like that last scene with the discussion of the iPod. It really, <laughs> it, it works. Somehow they make that work because it's a man who does not know how to communicate with someone except to make them something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I enjoyed watching it. I don't know if it would have been on my that high up on my top 10 list. It might have still been in it, but that doesn't matter because top 10 lists don't really matter. So, no, uh, they it, don't. It, it, it's, it, I have never seen it a second time. I saw it in the theater and really liked it, and I have never gone back to it. And so I'm almost interested to watch it again now just to see what my reaction would be to it again. Um, and it's, it's so – and it's – and, you know, color it uh, – you know, I, I am – it may have a lot to do with the fact that I remember the Ashton Kutcher Steve Jobs movie. <laughs> and oh my God, thank you for not having that be the only depiction of Steve Jobs. Because, oh, I'm not a huge Steve Jobs fan, but he does not deserve that. No one deserves Kutcher. <laughs> no, no one. Um, no one. Maybe Danny Masterson. I will say that many of these films are available on Netflix right now. Um, I think with Trials Chicago 7 out there, they. 
They have a lot of the Bond There Molly's game, Steve Jobs, Moneyball, Social Network, all on there. Um, you don't need to watch Molly's game. You, you don't need to watch Molly's game. Well, let's talk about Molly's game. Yeah. Because I will tell you what I remember about Molly's Game. Because I saw it. It was one of those screeners I popped in in one of those days you know them where you have five screeners you're popping in and watching one after the other. And it kind of just blended into the rest of the screeners I watched except for Michael Sarah basically playing Tobey Maguire. I remember that. Bingo. And I remember some really – a really awful scene with Kevin Costner. (laughs) And, and to be fair, that is not Costner's fault. <laughs> no, it's a just a really on the nose, like way too yes. on the nose. Yes. And I think that it's... any positive thoughts I had about the movie, I kind of <laughs> they kind of got lost to that. Um, I, 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 we, we have shared our our distaste for Eddie Redmayne uh, earlier. Uh, I feel much the same way about jessica chastain i Mm. do not like jessica chastain uh and it took me a few films to figure out why because i didn't have this reaction to her at first uh in her career to me she always looks like she knows she's being photographed she knows she's being looked at there is not a naturalness in her uh at all and it's really off-putting to me this is very personal there is nothing wrong with her as an actress. <laughs> I am not saying she's a bad actress. Uh, I'm saying she's a bad actress for me. She sets off fake bells for me constantly. And it just kills this movie for me right from the beginning. I'm like, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're a person. You're, you're an actress being watched. You know it <laughs> That's... throughout. And, um, and it is in Stark. It is made Stark when Michael Sarah's on screen. Because that character is great. <laughs> Just on the page, that character is great. Um, if you care to do any research about the real life story, you'll understand why that character is great. Um, and uh, then the problem is I could almost get past all of that. And it's actually not the the scene with Costner is not what bothers me because that's exactly the kind of scene I would expect from a playwright who's very comfortable writing words, making their first directorial film and wanting something to make very clear what this whole thing is about. I cannot stand the Moby Dick conversation that he interrupts the movie to have his lead character and the lawyer who have been talking through the whole movie have a literary conversation that they would never have that has nothing to do other than to make some arbitrary point he's trying to make. And he does this again in Trial of Chicago 7, but does it much better. <laughs> in the big payoff scene between, uh, between uh, the two main characters, he, they, have a, they, have a, they have a part of the debate hinges on actual English, you know, English 201 conversations <laughs> about how things are supposed to be expressed. And that that's handled so much better there. He does the same thing with the Moby Dick conversation in, in Molly's game. And it's where I tuned out. I was like, no, you don't have control over this. You don't know what you're doing here. It's, it's, it's a really poor directorial debut. It looks fine. There's nothing technically wrong with it. It's a bad script. And the scriptwriter should have known better. Yeah, after this entire discussion we just had, I think maybe he should have known better. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, and now that you bring it up, I did not remember that Moby Dick scene. But as soon as you brought that up, 
Oh yeah, I remember it's that. Terrible. It, it grinds terrible. everything to a halt, and it's yes. it, it's one of those things where look how smart I am. I'm gonna toss this, you know, toss this in there because I can. And yep. Yeah. So that was Molly's game. I'm very glad Trial of the Chicago Seven was much much more well received by you. Um, I I like I said, I really want to go back after watching all these and rewatch it because a I really did enjoy it the first time, but b I feel like it. it the flow will be a little bit better for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, this was a very fun rewatch and for two of them, a first watch for me. I, I love, it's like, it's like putting on a favorite musician when you listen to his dialogue. And I'm very, uh, very happy that I have 155 episodes of the West wing to partake in, to get <laughs> no, more of that. 86, 86. He's done after 86. That's all you need. Oh, is he? That's okay. all you need to do. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. All right, well, that's that, That's a little more doable. And now the only question is, will his ego be enough that he needs feels the need to direct the movie adaptation of his stage adaptation? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, are you looking at his IMDb, aren't you? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I, I, this is the question. I've, because the other, we, 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 I, I feel, the, if we're going to talk about the entire career, I do feel the need to talk about the two most, uh, the two uh, beyond uh, few good men, his two most, uh, I don't want to say infamous, but notable stage productions. Of course, To Kill a Mockingbird, which was why there was a three-year break between Molly's Game and Trial of Chicago 7, uh, which uh, by all accounts is very good. I haven't seen it. I haven't read. I haven't read it. I would be interested. I would especially love to see Jeff Daniels play that part in a movie. I am intrigued. I, 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 I think it would be interesting to attempt to do it. I don't think it'll ever happen. I think he's, I think he's, uh, I think his ego is not that great (laughs) that he would feel that he could, he could better this classic that everybody loves. But if you are unfamiliar with a project called the Farnsworth invention, do you know anything about this, Chris? Um, I, I know it probably has something to do with TV. It does. It was a play he wrote uh, at, at the tail end of the West Wing. It was actually a screenplay that uh, Tommy Schlamme, the longtime director of the West Wing, was going to make. It never happened. And it ended up he ended up refashioning it into a play. Um, all I will say is uh, and a lot of the themes of that and a lot some of them actual you can see the direct thread that goes into the social network from the Farnsworth invention, but uh, do some reading, read up on the Farnsworth <laughs> invention. It has a very interesting history and, uh, and uh, has a, there's a lot of interesting things about what we were talking about, about how you take a real life story and what you do with it. That uh, there's a reason it didn't become really well known, but it's still out there and it is an interesting it is an interesting uh, uh, off-ramp in the Sorkin career. Fascinating. I will have to look into that. Um, according to NB, or to IMDb, the live uh, presentation of A Few Good Men is going to be directed by Scott Ellis and Alex Rudzinski, and not Aaron Sorkin. I know those names, but I don't know from where. But that doesn't surprise me. He doesn't know anything about directing live TV. He wouldn't want to do that. you got you got to have technical people do that. Yeah, yeah, you need, and I think, yeah, they were involved with, uh, oh, they were involved with Grease Live, which I did not see, but uh, Alex Rudzinski directed uh, the live Jesus Christ Superstar for NBC a few years back, which I do love. Ah, uh, all right. So maybe, maybe it'll be interesting. <laughs> 
I don't, but that's a better thing. <laughs> I like Jesus Christ Superstar. I just don't care for that that particular oh, I really like version that of it all that much. But that's that's me. I have my own issues with that show. But <laughs> there's things I need to have happen in that show, and they did not happen in that rendition of that show for me. That's all I'm going to say, and we'll leave it at that. That's for our Easter episode. <laughs> Hang on, people. Just six months, five months away. We're good. Oh, Perry, I think that brings us to the end of Aaron Sorkin right now. Where can people find you? You can hear me every Friday morning on the Lucy and Lance show on uh, WLBY in Ann Arbor. And you can find me on Facebook. You can find me at Twitter at Perry Loves Film. And, you know, when you see the smoke rising from my remote control as I attempt to rewatch and rewatch and rewatch as many things I can on the Criterion channel before it goes away every month. That's, that's me. You can find me that way. All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at mere Christianity. Um, and then I will just make it very easy. I put out a newsletter every Friday at criticisms.substack.com. You can read it there. You can subscribe, and that will link you up with any uh, any other writing and podcasting I do. So subscribe, share, and yeah, that'll be in your mailbox on Fridays. We will see you in two weeks.